Welcome to This Is America, September 2nd, 2022. On today's episode, we speak with two members of Sacramento IWOC, or the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, about their group, some of their recent campaigns, and how they are building relationships with prisoners on the inside for long-term abolitionist organizing. We then speak to a tenant organizer in Oakland, California, who speaks on a recent rent strike that kicked off and is supported by Tenants and Neighborhood Councils, or TANK. We talk about what led to the strike, how people got involved, and why tenants need to come together and push back against landlords. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. Oakland tenants are on rent strike, demanding repairs and for management to address rampant rodent infestations and mold. Be sure to check out our interview with the strike organizer later in this episode. On Tuesday, over 50 people rallied in Oakland in support of the rent strike, as journalist Jack Harbour reported. A crowd of over 50 people, including residents living in an 18-floor apartment complex and their supporters, rallied on Tuesday, August 30th, outside of the complex to announce a rent strike. Tenants say residents in at least 42 apartments, which make up about 25% of the complex's 165 occupied units, are withholding rent starting September 1st to pressure management and ownership to effectively address their issues. In Philadelphia, the struggle to stop the eviction of the UC townhouses continues. On Monday, over 100 protesters interrupted Penn President minutes into her first-ever speech, bringing the ceremony to an abrupt end. During the speech on incoming class diversity, a group of protesters, including members of the class of 2026, stood up and began chanting, Save UC Townhomes and Stop Pintrification. The Coalition to Save the UC Townhomes, a group of residents protesting the sale of 70 units of affordable housing, organized the demonstration in an effort to bring awareness to the local residents who are scheduled to be evicted on October 8th. In Berkeley, California, people continue to reoccupy and work the land at People's Park after fences were torn down, machinery destroyed, and riot police pushed out of the park on August 3rd. Upcoming events are being planned and mutual aid groups are calling for supplies. In Philadelphia, anger is growing in a new development project that threatens the South Philly Meadows, a former golf course that has been reclaimed by nature. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia police are investigating the vandalism of construction equipment in FDR Park, where crews broke ground last week on a controversial project to make a 33-acre wetland. Police responded to the incident, which involved damage to a bobcat and digging excavator Tuesday morning. In addition to graffiti and broken wires, police say sugar was poured into a tank. No arrests have been made, and the investigation is ongoing. The incident comes as some park users are mobilizing to oppose the project. The Philadelphia International Airport is funding the project to offset any wetlands and waterways affected by its air cargo facilities expansion. Also, from scenes from the Atlanta forest, 
banners went up in the trees in South Philly's FDR Meadows, where nearly 200 acres of wetlands and meadows, which serve as habitat for endangered migrating monarch butterflies and many other species of wildlife, are threatened by the city's plans to bury the earth in astroturf for more sports fields and other capitalist ventures. Public outcry in Philadelphia has already forced the city to compromise on their original plans, but we will accept no compromise in defense of the meadows and monarchs. Solidarity from Philadelphia to Atlanta. We live here. For more information, check out our show notes on the group Save the Meadows. Students and community members are celebrating over 100 days of taking over and self-managing Parker Elementary in East Oakland, a school which the Oakland Unified School District has scheduled for closure. Curriculum, classes, events, and programs have been organized through the occupied school over the past 100 days as parents, former staff, and supporters fight to push the district to reopen the school. Also in Northern California, forest defenders in the Batol Forest are calling for support, writing on Instagram, a year ago PG&E sent a small army into the Humboldt Redwood Forest State Park. Hundreds of folks showed up to protect the trees every day for five months. Almost all of the old growth trees they targeted are still standing. Cutting was suspended over the spring and summer, but now it's likely they will return to the park within the next few weeks, and folks in the Matoll are mobilizing to resist another onslaught. They need folks willing to come and stand with the forest. Follow Tree Sitters Union Local 707 on Instagram for more updates. You can also email forestaction at riseup.net to get involved and to participate in on-the-ground support. Jane's Revenge targeted an anti-abortion center in East Hampton, releasing a communique on abolition media stating, In the early morning of August 18th, at the Bedlam House, an anti-abortion center in so-called East Hampton, was paid a visit by community members who condemn its fascistic Christian patriarchal violence towards pregnant people. The Bethlehem House hides behind a facade of non-judgment and free resources for pregnant people while working diligently to spread its anti-abortion agenda. They lie to and mislead pregnant people in an effort to prevent them from accessing abortions. Fuck CPCs and their coercive tactics that threaten medical and bodily autonomy. The Forest Pregnancy Center was redecorated with brilliant paint, and words were spray-painted on the sidewalk and benches nearby, reading, If abortions aren't safe, neither are you, and of course, Jane's Revenge. Also, according to the Fourth East Vinegar Collective, who recently was on a podcast with It's Going Down, on the eve of the anniversary of the implementation of Texas's heartbeat law, Fourth East Vinegar Collective has released thousands of free abortion cards in 20 states in a follow-up to the overturning of Roe v. Wade just months ago. Their release of the DIY abortion pill video last year in response to SB8 going into effect redoubled their efforts to provide reproductive medicine and autonomy to vulnerable populations across the U.S. Last Saturday in Modesto, California, hundreds of anti-fascists, anti-racists, and counter-protesters converged to shut down a white nationalist organized straight pride rally in front of a Planned Parenthood clinic. Over 250 counter-protesters held the space for hours and pushed out a half-dozen Proud Boys who attempted to attack the crowd. In response, riot police attacked the crowd with projectiles after declaring an unlawful assembly. While the far-right rally was shut down, a small group of less than 30 Proud Boys and Christian nationalists rallied in front of a different reproductive clinic where they were pelted with eggs and attempted to attack a journalist with Left Coast Right Watch. On Saturday in Roanoke, Texas, members of the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club provided armed security outside of a drag brunch event at a restaurant. Journalist Steve Monticelli, who has also been on the It's Going Down podcast, noted that the far-right counter-protesters, which included self-described Christian nationalists, were outnumbered and despite attempts to provoke armed anti-fascists, were not successful in carrying out any acts of violence. 
Members of the John Brown Gun Club helped to de-escalate conflicts and walk community members back to their cars. The story of armed Antifa protecting the drag of it quickly spread across the far-right media ecosystem, while many applauded those who defended the event. In Southern California, anti-fascists also destroyed and took down a White Lives Matter banner from an overpass and confronted one neo-Nazi who took down a Nazi's Not Welcome banner. Over 100 students at Grapevine High School in Texas walked out against ongoing attacks on queer and trans youth, including new homophobic and transphobic rules around bathrooms, books, and sports. On Wednesday, police cars in the parking garage located in Richmond, Virginia were vandalized with slogans reading ACAB and Bastards. A banner was dropped in Akron, Ohio reading Justice for Jalen Walker as anger over his killing continues. In Tucson, Arizona, people hit the streets in protest of ongoing deaths in the Pima County Jail where in the past year more than a dozen people have died. In Denver, Colorado, people took to the streets in protest of a mass police shooting, which occurred after police opened fire and injured several pedestrians on a busy street after shooting at a man they thought was armed. Meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, protests and riots broke out against LUMA Energy, a private, public, American-Canadian company which controls the distribution and maintenance of Puerto Rico's power grid, as people demanded that the company contract be canceled in the face of rising costs and continued blackouts. Protests flooded the old San Juan city, leading to clashes with the authorities, who violently attacked protesters and journalists with projectiles. Also in Jackson, Mississippi, Cooperation Jackson is mobilizing in the face of massive flooding and the failure of infrastructure. From their website, they write, Due to climate change and decades of neglect of our city's infrastructure, critical portions of Jackson have flooded and incapacitated our city's water treatment facilities. As a result, the entire city is without drinking water. It is not clear when the system is going to be repaired and water access restored. The governor has declared a state of emergency and is deploying the National Guard to supply water to the residents of Jackson. However, to ensure that aid is distributed directly to the people in our community in West Jackson, we are engaging in an autonomous relief effort to ensure that the homeless, the elderly, and those with limited transportation in our community get the resources they need. We are asking for folks, comrades, and fellow cooperators to join us in the effort. Please donate generously at cooperationjackson.org donate. Spread the word to your family and friends and encourage them to donate as well. If you can, gear organization to deliver pallets of water. We welcome that as well. See our show notes for ways to get a hold of Cooperation Jackson. And now for some upcoming events. On September 3rd, there's the Halifax Anarchist Book Fair, followed by the New York City Anarchist Book Fair on September 10th and 11th. On September 10th through the 18th, there are various running-down-the-wall events happening across the U.S. in support of political prisoners. On September 24th and the 25th, there is the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair, followed by the Radical Atlanta Book Fair on October 15th. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdown.org shop. And that's itsgoingdown.org shop and help us grow. You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, Follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. I'm Zeno with 
the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee here in Sacramento. I'm Gianni, also part of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee as well. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Well, just talk to us about what Sacramento IWALK is and what it does. Yeah, so um, I can start us off. So IWALK, or Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, it's a national organization slash union for prisoners um, with a it's a it's more specifically a prison abolition union, but still a union at the same time. Um, and yeah, we're national. So there's chapters across the country. Um, but we're we're part of the California slash Sacramento chapter. Um, and yeah, and the the union consists of inside members and outside members, inside members being people who are in prison and then outside members like me and Zeno, we're not in prison. And yeah, and, and one of our main focuses is that we want to build relationships with people inside um, and try to form as much community as possible um, because uh, we believe that, you know, we can't fight for prison abolition without actually like building these vital relationships with each other and, you know, building community. We coordinate uh, California-wide, our branch does. So if anyone is interested who's not from the Sacramento area, um, you can still feel free to hit us up. Also, there is uh, um, an IWOC presence in the British Isles, and we are open to existing in any country or territory, uh, but we exist mostly in the British Isles and the U.S. for right now. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the other stuff that you all have been involved in before we talk about some recent projects? Um, I know you all have done, like, demonstrations. There's been a lot of organizing inside, and you have, like, just ongoing projects. You want to just talk a little bit about those? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll mention something we did earlier this month. Yeah, earlier this month we had a call to action for one of the women's facilities in California, women's in hard quotations, just because, you know, there's, you know, many people in these facilities, or rather, like, you know, the prison system tries to enforce a binary gender. But anyway, but yes, we had a call to action for one of these facilities, um, specifically an email zap. And yeah, and that's one of them, like, we... We frequently do email zaps and phone zaps for different things. Um, and if you're unfamiliar, an email slash phone zap is just a, a way, the purpose, or rather what it consists of is um, getting a, a group of people to call and email a specific phone number or a specific email address with the purpose of overwhelming whoever's on like the other end of that. Um, and like as a way to like, you know, disrupt, disrupt the flow of business and to, to also like essentially add pressure and just to like, you know, make them aware that like, yeah, the community is keeping their eye on them and it's very much like, you know, like they know what's going on and kind of just to like apply pressure and disrupt the flow of business. So anyway, uh, yeah, earlier this month we had a call to action for a specific issue that was happening in this woman this in this woman's facility um there was a group of firefighters uh incarcerated firefighters just because you know with the nature of incarceration many people have to do 
labor for little to no pay. But anyway, um, but yeah, they were being kept in an extremely hot room that was like 90 to 95 degrees with over 100 people um, with no air conditioning, um, which is, you know, very dangerous uh, for because of COVID and just because of like the mere temperature of that. Um, and they were requesting air, but they would not be given air conditioning. So we uh, we basically got we got um, those of us who are part of those of us who are outside members of IWOC, as well as like our more virtual community. We tried to, you know, mobilize the virtual community through social media to email um, someone at the prison. And after we did that, literally within hours or maybe it was less, I can't remember. They just straight up turned the air on after that, which is like, which is, you know, it's good, but also shocking because like that's all it took. Like they wouldn't turn it on before we were emailing them. But right after that, they just straight up turned it on. The person who was in touch with us about this was one of our members. And um, the details that we're giving about what the situation was are like based on her account. And another thing that they wanted was to be moved away from this building into the building for uh, for firefighters, which despite the fact that they're um, paid nothing, um, is some, well, not 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 literally nothing, but essentially nothing um, like, a, a, you know, a rounding error on what they should be paid. They get their own housing and it's viewed as like a privileged position to be in and an envied position to be in even um, to get that job because it's like I viewed as prestigious and it's like an adrenaline rush and people get to see the outdoors and like actually walk around the the non-prison world and like do important stuff. And so they wanted to be moved back to that housing. But we're in this unit that was designated as like COVID, like people entering the facility, imprisoned people entering the facility in like this quarantine. And so they were in the same building as all the people who are coming in from county jails across California. Um, and they had like, and they had, you know, this heat issue. Um, it sounded like there may have been not enough, not quite, there's never quite enough access to like food and water in prison either. Um, and so they were like sweating a lot and feeling that they were at risk for uh, dehydration uh, as well. And were very concerned and um and then the the fact that the ac wasn't on was affecting of course the temperature but also like the airflow which affects um and so uh you know like when you're operating a prison i guess you can't really do you can only do so much to keep people uh safe from things like covid and extreme heat um and so you know, that's just another good reason why we shouldn't have prisons. I remember, I think it was the last year or so that they were like literally running out of firefighters to fight the fires. So are things getting worse for those that are in prison that are being forced to do this work? Or is it still pretty much the same? Um, I think it's probably more the same than different. Um, not a very small, only a very small percentage, of course, of the overall incarcerated population are uh, firefighters. Um, but, um, those that are tend to be 
you know, considered minimum security. They um, obviously have to be of like a certain uh, like ability to be able to like go out there and fight fires. Um, and as far as I know, they make somewhere around like a dollar an hour, which is like really horrible. And, you know, they should make above like far above minimum wage, of course, in our view, our kind of um, medium term goal is for um, people incarcerated who are working to have to be paid the minimum wage, at least. Um, But of course, fighting fires is not exactly a minimum wage type job, uh, if you ask me, Um, like you're risking your life and potentially saving people's lives and like risking, you know, like severe, like smoke inhalation and whatnot. But yeah, they're paid a dollar an hour. And in prison terms, that's considered like practically breaking the bank um, because other people make like, you know, like, you know, like nine cents an hour to like nothing. What else are you all working on that we can talk about? I was already explaining the phone and email zaps, but one thing I did want to add to that is that um, at, as like a, a call to action, I think um, those are very useful, not only for the people who are inside, of course, because that's who we're centering. Um, but I think it's also a good way to mobilize the community in a sense, like or at least our virtual community, um, because I think uh, especially with with this past uh, email zap that we did earlier this month. Um, the turnaround was really fast. Like they like are like, it, it, I think it was just a few hours that it took for them to turn on the air. Um, we were able to tell people that, yeah, like, yeah, this worked. And I think that's just like a good way to like engage the community and like show them that like, yes, like when we, when we do this, you know, like we, we can get what we want. So just like, you know, imagine what would happen if like, you know, we did this more often for other things as well. But but yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Other things that we do other than phone zaps. I mean, I think uh, generally speaking, uh, something that we like that what, one of the more general things that we that we do is that um, all of we try to make it so that all of our inside members are in contact with an outside member um, and that we're like maintaining relationships between each other. Um, and talking to each other and whatnot. Um, cause I think like, yeah, like, you know, cause we want to foster a community, like I was saying earlier. Um, other things that we're doing, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we also, uh, work with, uh, or collaborate a little bit with, um, other organizations to send in books as well. Um, and yeah, I don't want to say too much. Uh, what what else is there, Zeno, that we can say? We're able to collaborate with other groups to like better get people access to like literature and stuff like that. The union, um, the IWW, that is also like allocates money for us to do um, literature stuff, which actually was increased uh, in this new um budget despite the fact that a lot of other stuff was cut um in the in the IWW budget um so we really appreciate that um that the IWW like sees the importance of getting people access to literature inside and we are working with like various radical publishers that have like this subscription kind of option where like you pay 
money monthly to them and then you get a discount like you get like a 50 percent discount on on everything um we find that to be a total you know totally good deal that we're you know gonna get more than our our money's worth like back on because we order people stuff someone that uh, we ordered stuff for recently just got it and he said that getting these books was one of his best days in 19 years of incarceration, which I didn't even expect it to be that good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that kind of, like, floored me a little bit. But we also are in the process of, like, working with other groups to gather some DVDs. So if you look at our uh, Instagram, you'll see that we're doing a new, like, DVD drive to get DVDs to people uh, in like a certain building in a certain prison. We also have our own kind of like, like literature creation effort where like people inside write up essays and then, you know, we put it into a newsletter. And then there's also like the effort of like putting together more like, like particular, like a lot of groups put together like legal guides for people inside. So when we send like pamphlets and stuff like that, a lot of times, you know, we can send like cool political stuff, but a lot of times what people really need is like these legal guides, uh, you know, that are guides to stuff like resentencing, parole, you know, the grievance procedure. People in California prisons can file grievances, which often there's retaliation for that, but the grievances also do have like potentially an impact like potentially filing a grievance can get an issue resolved. And if, if you want to sue the prison, you have to file the grievance first. That's in the Prison Litigation Reform Act and go through that whole process first. So grievances are important. But then officers are like, you know, um, what I should call, you know, like correctional officers or guards. They can um, give people inside what's called like a 115 or like a write-up. So And then that is like the reverse, right? It like affects the person's ability to role and maybe like can result in like other like quote-unquote privileges like calling their family and stuff like that being taken away as well and so like recently one of the things I was working on is like connecting someone who got a a, a write-up reversed or like got their write-up taken away to someone who just got a write-up and so she's gonna help the other person like get her write-up taken away as well stuff like that just kind of nitty-gritty stuff um yeah. like helps individual people but then also when there is like collective and or like collective need like really coming through with that public support you mentioned uh building a community between folks can you talk a little bit more about that how do you do that especially when you know some folks are on the outside some folks are on the inside you know they're going through horrible things how do you actually build those relationships yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess we can both answer this question. But to start off, uh, yeah, um, a lot of us uh, do letter writing. So we write other people who are inside. Um, and to be clear, like we yeah, like we like to, of course, uh, write people who are IWOC members who are inside. But we also uh, do write people who are not IWOC members as well. Um and uh, we can we also some of us do phone calls. I do phone calls and I do letter writing as well. Um, 
phone calls can be hard. I mean, like it's uh, it's hard or rather it, it's good in the sense that like you get to talk to the person. But um, the phone calls have to be very short and phone conversations are recorded. Um, but yeah, that, that's another method of communication. And then there's also visiting. Like I'm going to visit someone soon, actually, um, and just to hang out with this person um, in, in prison, of course, like not outside of prison. But yeah, um, so prison visits are also a thing. Um, and I like to honestly like uh, I like to personally think of it not necessarily as like, oh, we're just here to um, only provide like I, I, I like to stray away from thinking of it as like a one one way relationship, but more so like, you know, this is an actual relationship um, that we're, we're trying to cultivate between people. Um, but yeah, those are uh, some of the more primary ways. Um, oh, and we also I didn't mention this, but we also have uh, jail aid nights. Um, so that's not these are specifically at jails, not at prisons. But um, it's uh, every so often we'll like set up supplies outside of a jail um, around a time when people are typically released just to like uh, just to provide some like, you know, food items or coffee or just like essential need items to people who are coming out who are oftentimes not able to access those things right away and also just to meet people as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of, you know, what we do. So with connecting with people inside, yeah, we like write letters. And then as uh, Gianni was describing, there's kind of like level one is like letters. Level two is like doing phone calls with people. And then like the ultimate level is like doing prison visits. I must say I did prison visits before COVID. And since COVID, they've like totally screwed up the prison visit system like on purpose to make it uh, worse and like let less people do it and like kind of pit people, pit like families and like people that want to visit against each other um, for like, like scheduling slots and stuff like that. So like a lot of families, a lot of like people who, who visit people inside um, like already do pressure the prisons on like certain things having to do with like visits or, like, if, if something really extreme is going on, like, they feel like their loved one's life is, like, in danger, um, like, they'll, you know, they'll do something or sometimes they'll contact us uh, and stuff like that. And sometimes we're able to, like, get those particular issues resolved as well. Um, so, yeah, there's the active community around, like, people that visit um, already. And that's pretty cool. And when you do a visit you get to meet some of those people um that are also like doing you know they're not doing the same thing we're doing they're you know they're like caring for their like particular friend or family member or loved one um but that's you know also incredibly important and and uh you know we value that tremendously and, and respect them for that because unfortunately a lot of people inside just have people kind of like forget about them um, and it's, it's like, you know, our capitalist modernity or whatever you want to call it makes it very easy for people to just kind of like forget about their imprisoned loved one, especially, you know, when that person is considered maybe like an embarrassment to like the family or, or what have you.
And so, yeah, we, we, you know, want to connect people across, you know, like all those divides and a lot of, some of our members have people, you know, in their family that they're still in touch with and some don't, you know, and some, some have people in their family that they're in touch with who are like very, you know, like, like maybe, you know, on the older side and, you know, they really hope to get out and like be able to take care of those people and like, and like have some more moments with their, with their family members outside, like before they, you know, at some point, um, pass away. And, um, it's really sad that like a lot of people don't get that. So, so yeah, we just try to like give, you know, give people what we can. Um, we're not like we're, we try to be, you know, solidarity oriented and not like service oriented, but that dualism can be kind of muddled when, you know, us on the outside are in such a, I have so much more access to like resources and, and like influence relative to people on the inside. But then on the flip side, it means that we can like do so much more like, uh, this prison strikes that happened in like 2016 and 2018 were not like solely due to IWOC. And I don't want to, um, you know, say that they were, but if we consider those like labor actions that I walk and like the IWW had some kind of hand in, um, in supporting at least those, you know, it wasn't, I don't want to say it was like an IWW strike, but nonetheless, I think it's significant that like those strikes, it, you know, included like thousands of people. Um, and the IWW has not had any strike that size, you know, apart from that in like a very, very, very long time. And so. Um, I think that like supporting stuff like that is really important. And of course, we're well aware that we're within the range of time that is, you know, from August 21st to September 9th. And so we're, we have that on our minds, but we're building capacity and, and connecting people and trying to like fulfill our uh, members wishes, uh, all the time. And so we might not be doing any particular uh, mobilization for the shut them down thing as far as publicity. But we hope that, you know, this interview reaches people and that people know that, you know, the, the hard organizing is often not, um, you know, flashy or uh, news ready or, you know what I mean? Yeah, so. definitely. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, yeah, I think the hard part um, about organizing can be, like, to just, like, stay motivated to do it over a long period of time as opposed to just, like, at this heightened moment where everyone is very, like, pumped up about a specific issue. But, yeah, yeah, uh, I just wanted to echo that. Another thing that we, like, are doing um, and excited to do more, hopefully, uh, in the near future is, like, Organizing, I'm not going to say where, obviously, but organizing uh, among workers at workplaces that are, you know, tangentially connected to the prison industrial complex in order to, like, have that kind of positive impact and, like, be able to kind of reorganize, you know, production, distribution, amelioration, communication, uh, and all that in a way that is more like beneficial and empowering for people uh who 
either are currently incarcerated or are like formerly incarcerated or um, like general kind of general populations that have like a heavy overlap with like incarcerated folks and folks impacted by that. If you're at like a workplace like that, um, even if it's something that might be considered like, you know, like bad, like say like the telephone, like services or, or whatever, it's, it's still important to like organize uh, on the job and like win stuff for, for those workers, but also importantly for like people inside um, and like have that solidarity across those like enforced boundaries right i would just say that that kind of stuff is really really important and that we're ultimately like not going to abolish prison obviously in separation from like a broader you know social revolution and in my view that social revolution needs to include an aspect of like challenging the power of employers and like the employing class and that you know if workers are not going to be in control of like production, distribution, et cetera, you know, that means that some other class will be. And so it's a really important aspect, um, if not the most important. Well, great. Well, is there anything else you want to cover? We've been talking for a while. I encourage people to check out Sacramento iWalk on social media. We'll have all that linked in our show notes. Any other things you want to talk about or encourage people to go to a certain spot online to follow you? Please follow us on social media. Uh, we are Sacramento underscore IWalk um, on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, um, like we were saying earlier, like we are, uh, we're not just confined to California. Um, we have chapters uh, all over the country and some outside of the country. Um, but yeah, please feel free to contact us um, or contact other IWALK chapters. Uh, even if you contact us, we can always put you in touch with whoever. Even if you, like, if you want to join IWALK or simply, like, learn more or even participate in some of our, you know, like, events. We also do a lot of outreach stuff. So most of what we talked about here was more in reach, but we also do a lot of outreach stuff within, like, the community that is outside of prison. Um, we didn't really talk about that today, but... We could definitely talk about that more in a future episode. Um, but yeah, and then also our email is incarcerated. Sacramento at incarceratedworkers.org. Yes, thank you. But if you just want to contact the Sacramento IWW, which like, you know, we work together a lot. And so, you know, we'll, we'll find out about it if you do. Um, you can email Sacramento at IWW.org. Um, Gianni was saying we're not confined to Sacramento. We're not confined to California. Hopefully, you know, we're not confined to the the uh, Anglosphere world forever. So, you know, if you're in some other part of the world listening to this, you know, uh, IWALK would be happy to assist you uh, in setting up like a some kind of prisoners union or or what have you in your part of the world or part of the country, particularly um, for us, if you're listening in like the Central Valley or in SoCal, um, we would love to talk. And we already know some people, folks that we've that we've just been involved with uh, in those areas. So, yeah, definitely feel free to hit us up if you're also like a union member and you're and like people in your union 
um, or like your official job has something to do with the prison industrial complex or come or you come in contact, you know, with incarcerated individuals, either like physically or, or virtually in some way, um, you know, definitely feel free to hit us up. The general IWOC uh, email address is media at incarceratedworkers.org. Um, so that would be good if you're like a journalist or or anyone who wants to like contact IWOC nationally. Uh, don't be shy. You know, we'd love to hear from you. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. I am a tenant at uh, Merritt on 3rd. It's an 18-story building uh, in East Lake, Oakland. Um, it's actually now recently coined Renew on Merritt. Um, and I have been living in the building for about three years um, and am a founding member of the tenant council in the building. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. So... Our understanding is that there is a rent strike that is kicked off at the building. It is associated with uh, sort of like an umbrella of tenant unions across the East Bay called um, Tenants and Neighborhood Councils, or TANK for short. Just talk to us about the conditions at the building and like what led to the formation of the tenant council that you helped start. Since COVID, things have definitely started to deteriorate. Um, we basically had one elevator that was, that's been down, uh, on a, on a regular basis. There's only one elevator that's servicing 18 stories of this, uh, or sorry, there's only two elevators servicing 18 stories of the, um, of this building. Uh, and so with one down, it really can affect mobility and, and, you know, it's, it's definitely an issue. Um, there have also been, uh, there was, the hot water was turned off for almost a week without any kind of warning or notice. Um, and there has been a growing, uh, rodent infestation in and around, um, the building. Um, so we've seen rodents up to, uh, the 11th floor, uh, or potentially the 13th floor, I believe. And on the first floor, uh, many, um, tenants have moved out due to the mouse infestation that is in apartments and in the walls. Um, and so kind of the culmination and what, what really, uh, the catalyst for starting a movement in the building was in June when both elevators um, stopped working for more than 24 hours. Um, and there are um, disabled people in the building, young families, elderly. Um, it's a really diverse community. Um, and that was just kind of when we all had had enough and decided to do something about it. On the Tank Twitter they were talking about some interesting stuff that I thought was really poignant to go over. They were saying how the building has done a lot of like cosmetic upgrades to like make it look new, but the structural problems have remained and gotten worse. Can you talk a little bit about that? Something that we're going through as of the last week and a half is, um, is change ownership and change management. Like I mentioned, the name of the building has changed. Um, I think, you know, they're trying to rebrand. Um, 
and move away from the bad reviews. But I mean, the problems still persist right now um, since they have started, you know, managing like new management is they're called Trinity uh, Property Consultants, I believe. Um, and their primary their, their first focus has been to expand the dog park in the um, in the back area of the building, um, which is definitely well, it wasn't on our list of demands. We, we wrote a list of uh, extens- an extensive list of demands that we delivered to ownership and management um, in July. And yeah, the dog park uh, expansion was definitely not on that list. There are um, really important matters that need to be addressed, like our safety and our health, for one. Um, and those have just continued to be ignored. Um, so that's why, even though, yes, we've gone through change management and change ownership in the last week and a half, um, we don't think that they're taking us seriously and we don't think that they're taking the, the issue seriously. So that's why we are going to continue um, with our, our movement. The rent strike officially starts today and there are more than uh, 40 units participating in the strike so far so that that may be growing at by end of day we're still in conversations with some units that are that are you know have questions but um that's where we stand right now talk to us about the process of starting the uh, tenant council how did it all kind of come together i think people were just tired um we didn't have anybody managing the building um consistently starting in january um as the uh, previous managers and, and ownership were trying to sell it, um, which was just unacceptable. We didn't have um, anybody to turn to. So we were having to fend for ourselves. Um, and then, you know, I think what really just was the last straw was the elevator situation. Um, and that's kind of when, um, you know, we just we or I decided to do something about it. I uh, I posted I, I wrote up a um I, I typed up a note and said, are you tired of uh, the conditions in the building? Are you ready to come together and do something about it? Um, and started a Facebook group. Um, we had our first tenant council meeting about three days after that. That was June 6th, I believe. And we had our first tenant council meeting June 9th, um, where there are more than 100 tenants that attended. Um, at that meeting, we actually learned that the master key to the building had been stolen. So um, that was something else that really just got tenants really upset as well, um, even though we had other reasons to be upset and frustrated. Um, and so, yeah, that was just kind of the, the, the start of the building coming together, creating community, which has actually been like a really awesome plus to all of this is that now we know each other by first name. Um, there's a lot of people living in this building. It's 178 units. Um, and I know most people by, by first name now, um, which is, which is something that's, that, that there's, that's the, the, the beauty in, you know, coming together as a community, right? You're, you're, you get to get to know your neighbors. Um, so it's also like, a, a good thing <laughs> um, in terms of just feeling like you can talk to people. You don't have to pass them, you know, by in the, in the, in the hallway and not say anything. Um, so that's been the, a, a plus of, of starting this tenant movement in the building. Were you personally inspired by other tenants organizing the East Bay area? I know that there was just like a rent strike. I think that ended recently yeah. where, where the tenants uh, actually I think bought the building. Totally. So 
I, I didn't even know about the tenant movement in, in the area. Um, when, you know, when I first decided to, that we needed to come together and do something about it. But then I started to reach out and do research and I actually reached out to the Ivy Hill tenant union, um, and spoke with one of their founding members. Um, and then she put me in touch with Tank. Um, and then that's kind of how, you know, Tank has been super instrumental in helping us get organized. I, this is like the first, um, movement I've ever organized. Um, and it's been super, super exhilarating. And, and, and it's been like awesome to have Tank's support throughout all of it. Um, so, so no. And then yes, <laughs> to answer your question, I wasn't inspired. I didn't even know that, you know, I didn't know what we could do and what, like what our options were, but I mean, I learned pretty quickly um, that as tenants, we do have rights. We don't have to uh, just abide by what, you know, this, the landlord says we can and can't do. If, if we are dealing with these habitability issues that are affecting our health, that are affecting just, just our living situation, um, you know, then we, we, we have a voice, we can do something about it. And that's what I've um, learned over the past few months. For sure. Yeah. And anybody that's ever rented just totally understands what you're talking about. Just that. Yeah. It's that question of, you know, who has the most force and who can bring to bear the most on the other person. Right. And obviously it's always the landlord, usually, unless you're in a position where you're organized, you know, and can fight back. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's an important message is that we don't have to just, you know, do everything that the landlord says, especially if, if it's, if it's not fair, if it's not, if it's not right, if, you know, I mean, we, you can come together, even if you have a small building, you can organize that building and, and, you know, demand change, demand updates. You know, I, I mean, we have some units who tenants have been living in the building. So this building is, was built in the seventies. Some tenants have been living in this building for that long. Previous management, FPI, um, they told those tenants they could either um, be bought out or they could uh, stay and nothing would be updated in their units. And that's absolutely illegal. But nobody, you know, when you're an individual tenant and you don't know your rights, um, you know, you're alone. You don't you don't know what you can do. Um, and so now we have been demanding, you know, those older units that haven't been upgraded in more than 10 years. Like they need they need the upgrades. They need, you know, to live in a safe and dignified space. Is part of this push getting rid of people that are on rent control or does rent control not figure into this? Well, I mean, I think that's definitely probably a part of their plan. I think, I mean, they, we were purchased by a, um, you know, an investment uh, firm. So, you know, they are making superficial renovations while neglecting our safety to boost profits, um, you know, from, from speculation. So, I mean, they... I think ideally would prefer the the people, the tenants who have, you know, been here the longest to move out, but um, they cannot force people to do that. Um, so, you know, they, they definitely have their goals in mind, um, but we have ours as well. Tell us about the rally that kicked off the rent strike the other day. Yeah. So it was super awesome. It was really exciting. We had I don't know, over 50 people come and like speak. Well, not 50 people didn't speak, but we all stood in from front of the building with our um, rent strike signs announcing the, uh, the, the, 
official start to the rent strike that was coming, you know, in a couple of days. And that was a couple of days ago. Um, so today. Um, and, you know, we had speakers, we had um, the Ivy Hill Tenant Union come and support us. Other um, tank members from around the Bay Area were there as well. Uh, it was super inspiring, just super motivating. Um, and then we also, you know, garnered more support from tenants in the building as well. Um, you know, that was that was that was a, a goal of ours was to get the attention of other tenants who, you know, were, were on the fence. And we did get more, um, you know, more tenants to um, join in uh, the the rent strike as well. So, um, yeah, it was just a super powerful moment. So you mentioned that not all the units are on board. What does the struggle ahead look like? I mean, you know, the goal right now we have... I read about, somewhere it was 20%. It's about, th- no, as of today, it's 35%. Oh, wow. So it's... Uh, almost doubled. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we're, we're gaining, you know, uh, support every day. I think it's just, um, you know, people who haven't been involved, like they, everybody has lives, everybody's busy, right? Like not everybody has been able to, to attend the meetings. We've been holding weekly meetings, Q and a sessions, um, you know, to educate people in the building about, um, what the rent strike would look like and, and, you know, what our rights are. So I think it's just, you know, continuing to have those one-on-one conversations, um, to kind of, uh, put people's fears, uh, you know, at ease, um, and to just explain and educate, um, is, is going to be the goal moving forward. I think, uh, most importantly, it'll be to have those one-on-one conversations. I have a couple of, um, tenants in the building who have reached out to me this morning who just want like to chat and they're, they're, you know, they're super supportive. They just want to make sure they understand, um, you know, what, what it'll look like, what our goals are. Um, so that's, that's basically what the, the, um, you know, the future will look like. Awesome. Well, is there anything people can do that are not living in the building to support? I mean, I think just spreading the word uh, on social media, if you see, um, you know, if, if you're able to share this interview with people, um, there are also different articles that have been written. Um, I, I think that's going to be the key is just to get the word out and to make sure that um, you know, our new ownership and management. So it's FPA multifamily, uh, is, are the new owners and then new management is Trinity property consultants. Um, you know, we just need to make sure that, that they feel the pressure that we're not, you know, we're not going to, uh, let up until our demands are met. Um, and we can come to the negotiation table and figure out a way, um, a way forward, a path forward where everybody feels safe. Everybody feels secure in where they're living, um, because that's our right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, tell us about this inspiring story. Is there anything else you want to go over? Final note. So the tenant movement opposes rent and profit based housing systems. So that's, you know, what we are, are working against is just, you know, no one should ever face eviction or unsafe housing. Um, and by organizing with our neighbors and the broader tenant union, we shift the balance of power between tenants and landlords into our favor. Um, I think that, that, is going to be my, you know, closing message to everybody.
We'll definitely agree with that. Well, thanks so yeah. much for taking the time to yeah. talk with us. And we encourage people to follow Tank on social media. Is there any other stuff online that people can go to to get updates? Right now, I think Tank is the best place for updates. They're, you know, sharing all of our, all of the latest um, news on our tenant movement. Um, I think we do plan to start our own social channels. We just haven't done so yet. Um, but you can follow Tank and they... Um, they will have all of the information there. Welcome to the States, where we dying over our skin, color, and race. Ideologies formed off hate. Now the grocery stores ain't safe. They shoot us or non, but they took and painting there without a scrape. I guess great. A lifesaver is never this color face. Discriminate me even rich, but can't get a loan from a bank. That's why everything you see here I own. I spent the cake. The TRS free book. Gunner and thugs somewhere behind the gate. The chances we take when they penalizing niggas for being great. Why they don't take it serious with supremacists, I was shooting brothers. What they have to do with color, all y'all do is shoot each other. We're true, but in the mall while shopping for shoes, I still do wonder. Dude, this crazy white boy in his trench coat got a Ruger under. Firearms legal when Republican states, and you can't be mad at it. Cause the suits that vote on these laws don't deal with our challenges. So them laws get passed to protect themselves from savages. White nationalists turn their views and guns on Jews and Africans. Lately, I've been traveling abroad as an entertainer. And frankly, it made me look at my country a little bit stranger. Mass shooting in my city, eight minutes from where my block at. Saw innocent people shot at a supermarket I shop at. Okay, once again, we're back for another week. Lots to talk about, as always. We're going to start off with Biden canceling student loan debt. You know, before we kind of get into this, I do want to say that I think there should be a shout out to the folks that have been organizing around debt. I know there's groups like the Debt Collective. I think they just put out a book on AK Press Mm -hmm. about organizing around debt. I know, obviously, uh, the late David Graeber wrote an entire book about debt. So there's been some really cool stuff kind of from our circles that have been around this. Encourage people to check that out. I know we were joking about uh, the fact that this move is obviously very political. You know, as you you had a great way of putting it about politicians wanting to like in the in the city where I live in, the joke is that if you want a pothole or a streetlight fixed, you just wait till election season and then you call city hall then, <laughs> and it'll get fixed like immediately. But if you try and do it two years into a term, like they'll just never even call you back. Um, that that is reality for a lot of Rust Belt people. Just for those of you that don't live in the Rust Belt, that's what life like here is a lot of the time. Is that uh, it really does exist around political cycles like that. It's it's strange. It, it's a, an outgrowth of machine politics. So this is, really is very is. much an attempt to make millennials and younger people remember that Biden exists and you do want to vote for him. And and that there's some reason to care. I mean, so you got to think about this way, right? There's the voters that Joe Biden needs to show up for the midterms and to show up in 2024 are people who voted for Bernie Sanders largely, right? They're not people that voted for him. Um, and they're people that are, by and large, really disappointed. I don't know why they're disappointed. I don't know what they expected to have happen. But there's a lot of disappointments in the American electorate now about um, all the things that haven't happened, right? All the things that people wanted well, to Well, Biden happen. had a lot of promises, and he didn't deliver. Yep. I mean, like you said, I mean, that's not surprising for us. Nope. But I think for a lot of people, they felt that they had this mandate. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's pretty typical – 
relationship between the Democratic Party and Democratic Party voters, where for the last the better part of 50 years, well, I would even argue since World War II, um, what the Democratic Party has been pushing forward and what they say they're doing are directly at odds with each other and have been for a very long time. In this situation, what we're running into is actually something that's sadly ironic in a lot of ways um, and really points to a lot of the uh, sort of inherent problems of things like austerity uh, that people in, say, my age group or younger have just grown up with. So, you know, for those of us that were the children of the Reagan years um, or later, you know, we've only known austerity our entire lives. Like we've only grown up in a period of time where there's been budget cuts and program cuts. And that's the life that we know. But for our parents, for a lot of our parents, when they went to college, college was able to just be paid for. They didn't need loans, right? There were grants. Tuition was affordable. During the Reagan years, there was a direct push, not just from the federal level, but on the state level, to defund certain types of higher education, um, specifically higher education that was not, quote, you know, centered on getting a job. You know, so things that weren't like business schools or engineering schools or things like this. Like there was this huge push to cut funding for things like liberal arts, right? Uh, things like philosophy departments or political science departments, you know, things like this. And one of the ways that they did that or one of the ways that they were able to sort of reshape education was by changing the student base, right? That when everybody was able to go to school in the 1960s and early 70s, there was a lot of student resistance. And a lot of that had to do with things like fees or the Vietnam War, things that were directly related to the life of being a student, right? And this wasn't just in the U.S. This also occurred in, in France, too, right? There was a lot of activity sort of in, in those areas. When they started cutting budgets for schools, they also started doing things like building what they called riot-proof campuses. And these were all attempts to sort of reshape the way that universities function within American life. Um, that the goal was to make them into job training sites and not into these sort of locations of discourse that can only happen in that place and that sort of play this role of social criticism, right? So as that happened, tuitions went up, went up dramatically. And so really what the Biden administration is doing is they are trying to put a Band-Aid over a problem that Joe Biden himself is at least partially responsible for as a person who voted for that austerity, as a person who pushed those austerity programs, right? And so what he's doing is he's solving a problem he helped cause, kind of, not even really. But it's sort of this aesthetic attempt to solve a problem of the political system's own making. Um, and to solve a problem that really cuts to the core of things like social priorities or political values in the United States and how little of that, how little of those values currently are based on things like collective education or discourse or things like this. Right. So really, what is this? It doesn't actually solve anything. Right. It didn't make tuition go down. It didn't change the way that schools price their tuition rates. It didn't give more assistance to kids going into school. All it tried to do was solve a problem that was created by the same people that are now trying to solve the problem. I'm literally imagining Morton Joe allowing the water to fall down to the people below in, in uh, Mad Max Fury Road. It also has this other follow on effect, too, which is student loan payments were going to resume, I think, next month. For almost everybody, um, that was going to be money out of people's pockets that they don't have now, especially because inflation's gone up and the COVID financial assistance has disappeared. Right. 
So that extra $250 or $300, $400 out of your budget really means something to a lot of people. And so the economic situation was about to get a lot worse for a good portion of the American population who has student loans that they have to pay off. Um, So this was preventative, right? But this was also sort of an attempt to build support. And really, you know, again, like there's all of these like joking, kind of hilarious, like, Dark Brandon goes full Bernie memes all over the internet today, which funny, like super funny. Um, but that's really not what's happening here, right? Like there's nothing about what happened with the student loan announcement that indicates that anything has actually fundamentally changed in any sort of way. There's no structural change. This is just something that's like a one-off. Yeah, it's a band-aid. And they would have to do this repeatedly over and over and over and over again in the coming years in order to continue to sort of generate the effect that they're attempting to generate, right? Like it's not, what they're doing is they're trying to free up disposable income for people with student loans to be able to spend them at a time when there's inflation as a way to stabilize the economy. Um, but you'd have to do that consistently and there's not political will for that. So this is very much probably very likely a one-off thing. They might do this maybe one or two more times, but this is not going to be a thing that people should expect. Yeah, there's a really fascinating article in The Intercept. It's called The Origin of Student Debt. Reagan advisor warned free college had created dangerous educated proletariat. That's their words. Mm-hmm. Educated mm-hmm. proletariat. You know, we recently did a, a thread on Reagan. You know, a lot of people forget he was governor of California. Oh, and yeah. When he came in in the late 60s, he really campaigned on this platform of smashing the left, especially on the universities, especially in places like mm-hmm. UC Berkeley. This is hot on the heels of the free speech movement, which there's a great article on it's going down about the history of the free speech movement, which it's so funny because the right often holds this up as, you know, <laughs> this example of people doing what they're talking about, which is totally not what happened. It was a bunch of leftist Marxists and communists largely that had gone to the South, participated in the Freedom Rides, and they came back and they were organizing on the UC Berkeley campus. And basically the campus during McCarthyism was like, we don't want these commies passing out newspapers Mm -hmm. on the quad. So they were trying Mm -hmm. to stop them from tabling. And that's what the entire fight was about, essentially, was would students have the ability to pass out left-wing, often Marxist and communist literature on the campus. And that's how that fight developed around the free speech movement, mm-hmm. which is just fascinating. And then fast forward a couple years um, to 1969 and this huge, massive struggle develops around people's park where people yeah. liberate this area that had been displaced uh, via eminent domain. And then riots erupt because people have taken over the this area, this plot of land, they started to work it, turn it into this autonomous park. I mean, Reagan literally sent in, you know, the military, the police. They were shooting people with shotguns. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one person that was killed during the initial People's Park riots, and there were, I think, over a 100 people that were injured over the course of, you know, a day or so that were shot. I mean, imagine, you know, most of us... 
listening to this have probably been to a demonstration. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have been at a demonstration, maybe where the police have shot off like flashbang grenades or, you know, they'll shoot things like wooden dowels or mm-hmm. just different projectiles. But literally imagine like riot police with shotguns shooting at you. I mean, that is intense, you know? Yeah. Uh, that is very intense. And you can, I mean, if you've ever shot a shotgun, you know that that thing can do some damage, you know, whether, oh, yeah. you're, whether you're shooting with buckshot, birdshot, or you're shooting with slugs. I mean, I think they were shooting at people with, um, like actual buckshot. They had taken out, Jeez. you know, the birdshot is like if you're shooting at clay pigeons, you're shooting basically little, little BBs, you know, plastic stuff to break apart the clay pigeons. You know, buckshot is, you know, stuff that you would, killing it you know like a deer with and that <laughs> blows stuff up and it's no joke um yeah. which is intense and this is something that you know at the time was widely supported mm-hmm. by people in california it's like oh yeah they're really giving it to the commies in berkeley which also is fascinating mm-hmm. too because it shows the degree in which that stuff has shifted because now i mean something like i mean we'll talk about some more police stories later in the program but Looking back on the brutality of the police there, you know, they literally came in, they occupied the area, they like had roads blocked off, you know, to get in and out of the city. It was literally a military occupation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of this area. They were killing people, shooting them in the streets. You know, there was one instance where the police flew in helicopters and they were tear gassing people. And the tear gas was so intense that it was filling wow. into like schools and other in- other places. I think there was one instance where people were like swimming in a local pool and they, you know, it was seeping into there and people were getting sick. I mean, and that's what started to kind of turn the tide against it and uh, people's perception of it. But I feel like today, because of things like this, uh, there is such a feeling of, of anger towards that. I mean, you can see that, like, with Trump, there was sort of a return to that. Like, you know, we're going to smash these people. We're going to smash them off the streets. I mean, that was essentially like the Reagan playbook. You know, Trump mm-hmm. was going mm-hmm. back to what Reagan had done in the 1960s with the left. Then. Um, and, you know, we saw what happened then. I mean, <laughs> according to one poll... <laughs> Burning the third precinct in Minneapolis is more popular than (laughs) Biden is right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's, again, it's fascinating to think about not only Reagan's response to student struggles in the late 60s, but also out of that, this uh, comment by um, one of his advisors that they wanted Mm -hmm. to stop allowing people to go to state-funded schools for free or for really cheap, you know, that would be accessible to working-class students because they didn't want an educated proletariat. I think Reagan famously said, like, we don't want to pay people to go and protest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, it was a similar mentality to what existed in Ohio at the time, right? And what did that lead to in Ohio? It led to Kent State, right? So, I mean, the the idea that politicians would pretty intentionally use austerity as a, a reason to shift the culture of university campuses, though it seems today like not something that would necessarily happen. Um, coming out of the 1960s, that was a primary concern of the political class, was how do you pacify the university system? And so when you combine that with this sort of drive towards austerity, which started under Reagan but continues today, 
Um, and you combine that with the idea of sort of um, a hegemonic understanding of capitalism in which, you know, the U.S. government grounds policy in the notion that capitalism is sort of hegemonic in everyday life. Um, well, it makes sense then that they sit there and say, well, what we really need to do is cut university funding so we can turn them into job training sites for people that already have access to resources, that we can use this as a way to stabilize class relationships in the United States, so we can use this as a way to sort of guarantee that universities train people in the things we want them to be trained in, things like how to be good employees, um, but don't engage in sort of discussion around things like social criticism. Um, and that doesn't have to be based in some idea of a shadowy cabal of people sitting in a room together conspiring against, quote, working class people. In reality, what's happening is the leadership of university systems, whether those be state university systems or the boards of directors of smaller private schools, are drawn from the same social class. And that social class is a very direct material interest in preventing universities from becoming sites of political resistance. So it doesn't even have to be an explicit thing, as explicit as it was within the Reagan administration. But it can be more implicit. It can be based in ideas like, you know, making sure that university education or university degrees are able to be valuable in the job place, right? Which essentially takes the entire idea of education and fits it fully within the framework of training employees within capitalism, right? That's not a conspiracy. That's just capitalism functioning. And so really what the Biden administration did here was very little. You know, we want to think about it and like on a material level for a lot of people, a lot of people I know, uh, this is going to mean a lot, right? Uh, it's going to mean that you can pay rent a lot more easily and go get your groceries. But on a systemic level, the reality is, is that nothing has changed here. That what this did was this compensated for a problem created by the political class in their attempts to manipulate the university system, right? It didn't solve that problem. It didn't change those dynamics. It didn't save the university system from itself. Because right now, the universities in the United States are no longer places of social and political discourse, right? They have become fully job training sites. And so what the Biden administration was able to do was essentially write a check out to a bunch of voters that tend to vote Democrat and encourage them to show up at the polls, right? What they did not do was solve the problem of classism and racism within university education in the United States, uh, which is a problem that only gets solved with a complete fundamental restructuring of the way that we think about education. This is both interesting and fascinating and also sad because the person was fired. Uh, you may have heard we posted about this on Instagram, sort of gone viral all over. Uh, but there's a firefighter uh, that's been fired for <laughs> sharing some thoughts on the police. And what's interesting about that is just what they said was, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this would be like, oh, this is totally right on. Uh, also, the response to the tweets to the firing of this firefighter has been really interesting. There's an article up on Newsweek we shared that says reaction to firefighters anti-police text showed disillusionment with police. Uh, basically what happened is they were responding to a police officer dying. And I don't know if there was some like sort of parade for them or something like that. Um, but they said some anti-police comments. They said, who cares? Another dead cop probably against gun control. They don't get an F when kids are dying in that school shooting. They stood outside. They're talking about Uvalde. 
Cops exist for the government to exercise its monopoly of violence. They want... They want the whole world to stop when one of theirs goes down. How many idiots I had to transport with honor guard their dead bodies from coronavirus because they're all too stupid to wear a mask or get vaccinated. All cops are good for is protecting the rich property owners and the status quo. Everything else is a farce. F the police. Which, I mean, damn, lay it all out. I mean, everything from the monopoly of violence to protecting the rich. I mean... That was, wow. That's great. That is like a right on rants for whoever this firefighter was. I mean, I don't know about the rest of you all, but like I've definitely had interactions with firefighters and EMTs that have been pretty similar to this before, right? Like there, I'll never forget uh, getting arrested at a lockdown one time um, and <laughs> the cops were messing with us and uh, were threatening to like, you know, break our arms and stuff. And uh, the firefighters and the EMTs of the city like showed up and were like, okay, we're taking control. This is a medically sensitive situation. We need all of you to back up. And they like made all the cops leave and then sat there talking for the next hour. It was great. It was so funny. Um, yeah, it's not the first time I've, I've heard of something like this. Um, the cops aren't very well loved by other people within the public services for the same reasons that they're not very well loved by the rest of us. This is from a comment that was posted to the It's Going Down uh, Instagram. I thought this was really interesting. This person writes, When I was a kid, I was arrested for possession of cannabis. Part of the sentencing was community service. I did my community service at a fire station, mostly watching <laughs> watching the trucks, which was cool with me. Eventually, the guy who was managing me saw that I was actually putting in some effort, so he took me under his wing and helped me become an assistant, helping fix the generators and general maintenance. I learned a lot. I was riding with him in the hardware to the hardware store one day to get some parts, and we passed by a police officer. I asked him why he didn't wave or anything, and he said, We are firefighters, not cops. We want to help people, not wave a gun around. This was my first time I sensed the difference. Like, if you go to the tweets, the thing that went viral that the Newsweek article was talking about was that there was this, uh, like, Fox News clip or something like that, basically saying, like, how disgusting it was this firefighter would dare say this thing about the police. And they just got dragged in the comments and totally ratioed, you know, which, I mean, you know, what can you say about that that hasn't been said a million times? Like, how much of it is a barometer of what larger society? It's hard to tell, but again, it just kind of opens this window into this larger discontent, especially post-Uvalde, which I think has only gotten larger. After 2020, I think the floodgates kind of opened a bit, and it became acceptable, at least in some circles. Apparently not in uh, random you know, fire department where this person works, but in a lot of circles, it's, it's become acceptable to say things like this. Um, that... Opinions like this are a lot more openly discussed than they were a few years ago. And I mean, I remember, I've talked to friends who've been around a long time about this, but, you know, I mean, I remember back to like 2005 or so, um, to be a prison abolitionist was almost unheard of, right? It was like anarchists, which there weren't nearly as many of us back then, and um, some black nationalists and black autonomists, and there weren't a lot of, of people running in those circles at that point either. And Really, I mean, there, it, it was, it was a position that most Americans never even engaged with, let alone engaged with the idea of police abolition. And now those are normal topics of conversation. Um, that to me is more indicative, right? This seems to be an illustration of something a lot bigger, um, in the sense that we can see it as sort of, um, 
someone feeling like they have license to be able to speak this way. Right. Which in the past, that wouldn't necessarily have been true, even if that's what they felt. So this is this is just horrific. I mean, this is just disgusting. Uh, there was recently a protest around this, but uh, the Denver Post writes uh, three innocent bystanders were shot by Denver police while standing outside of a bar last month. And they want the police to publicly apologize for their injuries and announce a plan to make sure that a similar incident does not happen again. Police shot three of the victims on July 17th while shooting at a man. They stopped outside a beer hall because they believed he was armed. The police shot the man as he threw a gun to the ground. Police injured six bystanders standing nearby. And they go on to talk about how the people that they... I mean, literally, so what happened? They were trying to see if this person was armed. He was armed. He put the gun down because he didn't want to die. They tried to shoot at him, and they ended up shooting three other folks. It It is horrific. Yeah, and in a city, like, uh, when other people in a group open fire on another group of people, whole parts of neighborhoods get shut down. Helicopters go up in the air. Cops are everywhere. Like, and here are the cops doing it themselves. I mean, it... it, it like the video is uh really shocking because it's not like they didn't know that there were people behind the guy when they were opening fire. It was completely impossible to not see the people 15 feet behind the guy. And they opened fire at someone standing in front of a group of people. How could, how like, is this not registering in their consciousness? I mean, I don't, I don't know. And the I only thing I can think of is that they're looking at this as a classic bad guy must eliminate and everyone else in the vicinity must be part of this whole operation too. And if they get hit, then, oh, well, tough to be them. Or, or they're operating in the mindset of being in an action movie, you know, because in action movies, the hero never misses. And in action movies, bullets don't pass through bodies and hit people behind them. I mean, the Cleveland police did this in the 137 Shots case, too, if anyone wants to watch a really disturbing documentary on Netflix. Um, they just rolled up and opened fire on a car 137 times, just in a big group, just volley fire style, just open fire, right? The Akron police just volley, like volley style open fire and killed Jalen Walker, right? Not even that long ago. So, like, the idea that cops line up and just volley fire, like, that happens. It's a weird thing, but it does happen. Um, the idea that they would do that with a group of people standing behind someone, though, is just really... It is the mentality of police impunity pushed to a point of just absolute absurdity. That's really where we're at right now. You know, one other part from the Denver Post article I want to read, uh, it says, All three shooting victims are still living with pain from the bullet wounds. Uh, One underwent surgery to move the bullet large in his bicep and reset the bone that had shattered. He still experiences painful nerve damage in his hand, which could become permanent. Another person who's 24 spent several nights in the hospital two weeks ago after the wounds in her arm and shoulder became infected. She can still feel the painful burning sensation in her arm from the bullet shrapnel large there. Another person, also 24, still feels pain in his foot when he puts his foot down and puts his full weight on it. He walks with a limp. Uh, they also now fear crowds and feel a sense of dread when they see police. Yeah, this is disgusting. I mean, we've talked about this before, too, but... We talk a lot about the amount of people that are killed by the police in the United States, which on average is about three per day. Studies have shown that when you kind of expand the scope out, when you look at not only people that are killed by police, but people that are shot 
by police and survive and also people that are shot at and maybe not hit, those numbers just grow exponentially. So you're not just talking about people that are killed by police. You're talking about people that are maimed, injured, and are living with the pain of being hurt by police uh, weapons and are living through that real trauma and that real pain. And that is exponentially bigger than just the folks that are murdered. I mean, not to, you know, push that under the rug at all. That's a huge impact. And the people and the families that are affected by that are massive. I mean, anybody that's worked with families that have been, had people killed by police, it's, it's a massive thing. I just think it's important to point out that it's not just people that are killed. It's all these other folks that are living with Physically, I mean, these people are walking with limps. They have police bullet shrapnel still in them. This is stuff they're going to have to deal with the rest of their life. Um, and I know a lot of people listening to this can probably feel a lot of sympathy with that because I know a lot of people, if you've been to demonstrations, especially in the past couple of years, you know what it's like. I mean, some people might even have, you know, real injuries from police. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about people that have lost eyes, people at Standing Rock that you know, there was that uh, one person that almost had their arms essentially cut off by the police. Uh, there's been some really horrific stuff. I mean, people have not just lost their lives. They've, you know, their bodies have gone through so much horror and trauma at the hands of the cops. You know, I, I often say, how would we talk about this if it were happening somewhere else in the world? <laughs> right. Um, and not in the United States or Western Europe. Like if this were happening in Central Asia, how would we talk about this? If this were happening in the Middle East, how would we talk about this? And the way that we would talk about this is an armed band of government supporters running around attacking people, right? And a social space that has to deal with the fallout from that year after year after year after year. And the fact that that violence is government policy, like that would be the source of just horror and just these reactions of just shock if it were if we were discussing this as happening in a place like turkey or something like that that we need to start thinking about what goes on in the u.s through the lens of how we talk about what goes on other places because the idea that a group of people in uniforms would roll up and just open fire on a group of people and then get away with total impunity and that that happens multiple times a year in the united states Um, The fact that that's our reality is really disturbing. And that is our reality. And there's nothing that we should, like, we should never allow that to be thought of or felt as if it's normal. Because it's not. And it's not a life we have to live. And it's not a world that we have to live in. Um, But it is one that there are a lot of people with a lot of guns trying to force to continue. Right? Um, It's not just that the cops roll up and shoot random groups of people. It's that the cops roll up and shoot random groups of people and then operate in all other moments to preserve their ability to roll up and shoot at random groups of people, right? That whenever they're pulling a car over, whenever they're like giving directions to someone on the street, that is also part of that process, right? And we cannot separate policing from the idea that its role is to be an occupying force for the state, right? That's what it is. And in that role, it declares the ability to determine life and death, right? That's not a world we have to live in, right? And these kind of experiences like what happened in Denver um, or what happened in the 137 shots case in Cleveland or what happened in Akron with Jalen Walker, um, when we see these cases, they're just increasing illustrations of how just completely out of control 
the enforcers of government sovereignty are. Continuing on talking about repression news, we want to turn now. There's an article or there's a story out about Facebook that's really disconcerting. A lot of people have been talking about it. How a case in Nebraska, this is according to CBS News, a Nebraska teenager is facing felony charges over an alleged abortion, charges that prosecutors were able to bring thanks to messages they obtained from Facebook. And this, of course, is causing alarm. Lawyers and privacy advocates highlight a chilling new reality of digital surveillance in which even discussing the procedure in states that have made it illegal potentially exposes people to criminal prosecution. What are your thoughts initially on this one? Is anybody surprised? I mean, like this was when I was talking to friends about this, the general reaction that came forward was one of horror and also complete expectation. Um, we give everything to companies like Facebook, right? Especially younger people give everything. To companies like Facebook, um, even in ways that aren't necessarily perceptible, um, because a lot of those platforms operate on pattern analysis, relational analysis, like not even necessarily the gathering of individual bits of data, right, but more like the gathering of patterns of behavior. We give this all to them voluntarily, right? And in a lot of cases, I mean, not just this case, we saw this with the uprising too. Facebook voluntarily collaborated with the state voluntarily it's not like they got taken to court it's not like there was some huge public relations fight or something like that it's not that facebook even issued a statement about it it's that they voluntarily willingly and knowingly collaborated with the state to engage in political repression openly and that doesn't just happen in the u.s that happens in other places in the world where the consequences for political resistance are way higher than they are here right and Facebook knowingly gives information to governments that kill activists. So it's like, why Why should any of this be surprising? I mean, we've been talking for a while on the show about how toxic Facebook is. Um, this should just be one more <laughs> glowing illustration of how toxic Facebook is. The fact that, A, somebody snitched this person out is disgusting and horrible. The fact that some prosecutor decided to even pursue this is completely absurd. The idea that Facebook collaborated in making it happen um, is absolutely completely unforgivable. And the only way that that stops is if we stop using their platforms. Um, obviously, they're immune to accountability. They don't care. They obviously don't care about their perception amongst people who use the platform, especially in the U.S., obviously many of which would at least consider stopping use of the platform over something like this. But what they're doing is they're targeting their core customer audience, right? And they're doing that in the most sustainable way possible. And the reality is, is that it is more sustainable for them and more profitable for them to not have a public relations controversy of any sort. And it is much easier for the state to just ask Facebook for the data, right? And so what's been created is this kind of symbiotic relationship here where Facebook is able to sort of address problems quietly on its platform whenever the state brings forward a problem, as long as they're willing to just collaborate unquestioningly. And that's exactly what's gone on. That's exactly what we're seeing. Um, we know that tech companies can fight subpoenas. We've seen it happen before, right? We've seen tech companies even win in court over subpoenas. Very famously, DreamHost was able to fight off the U.S. government's attempt to get access to every single IP address 
that went to the resistj20.org site before Trump's inauguration, right? They were able to take that to court and win. So the fact that Facebook didn't do that when they could, when they have far more resources than DreamHost has to do this, the fact that they didn't do this makes that a choice. It makes that a conscious decision to collaborate. And that's not something that should ever be allowed to be forgivable. As far as I'm concerned, everyone should get off that platform as fast as humanly possible. According to the documents obtained by Vice, please ask for the girl's profile contact information while posting friend listing photos she uploaded and photos uploaded by others that tagged her. So they got everything, basically. Yep. Yep. Yeah, again, get off Facebook <laughs> if you can, yep. please. It is actively dangerous now. Like, it is actively a dangerous place to be. It's not that it's, uh, oh, well, if you're careful enough, it could be okay, or, uh, oh, if you just don't talk about certain things. No, 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 no. Facebook is actively a threat now. Actively. Um, at the point where they're doing something like this, at the point where they're essentially engaging in facilitating moral policing, which is what this is, um, yeah, there's no more, there's no more possibility to make that up at this point. There's no more possibility to make that okay. Um, that, you know, I, like they crossed that line for me a long time ago, but I think for the rest of us, if, if Facebook hadn't crossed that line for you at this point, it, it sure as hell should have now. Um, the fact that they turned over a minor to the police for having an abortion is just unconscionable. It, it, like, I, I just, it's almost unthinkable. It's almost unthinkable. Yeah, we're going to continue talking a little bit about uh, the continued wave of attacks on reproductive freedom and also the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, there continues to be a variety of attacks. Uh, Everything from a GOP candidate in Oklahoma calling for the stoning death of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, three more states in the last week have, have enacted trigger laws banning abortion. There's also a push by some to deny LGBTQ kids uh, free lunch, which we were talking about before. I don't know exactly how they would do that. But there's also something interesting as well. There's sort of been a recoil by some Republicans um, over their, you know, just like draconian uh, call for just the total ban on abortion. Uh, I know some of them have been pushing back on a complete ban. Some of them are sort of walking back their support. And they're starting to get scared over the midterms. So what are you seeing? So there's really two dynamics happening here um, that are really important. Uh, the first, and I think the, the more superficial, probably easier to see one, um, is, is the impact on the actual sort of electoral landscape, right? So, you know, again, you know, we don't do electoralism on this show, but the electoral landscape is a thing that exists and relevant to our political activity. Um, and so, what we're seeing here is we are seeing a mass social rejection of the Dobbs decision. Um, we knew that that was going to be the case beforehand, that there was going to be a blowback socially to the Dobbs decision, uh, just based on polling, right? Most Americans, the vast majority, um, believe in the ability of people to access abortions, right? The vast majority of Americans do. And so this kind of anti-choice position is a position of the extreme political minority. Um, so, they expected a kind of backlash. I don't think that they expected the backlash to be as widespread or as serious as it is. Um, the, one of the ways that we can sort of figure out kind of what the impact of the Dobbs decision has been is that you can look at sort of 
polling and fundraising data um, over the course of the last year. And you can see that immediately right after the Dobbs decision, the polling numbers for Republicans kind of across the board fell. And so did their fundraising, like pretty dramatically in some cases. Um, it's actually so bad at this point that the RNC is more or less begging donors to give money to some of these congressional and Senate candidates that are, you know, failing. I mean, completely failing, just like having campaigns that are just totally falling apart. And so there's this sort of, there's the sense in which Republicans were probably going to absolutely sweep the midterms and then the Dobbs decision happened. And now that's a question. Um, I don't know if it changes things dramatically enough that the Republicans don't retake the House, but it could change things dramatically enough that it means they don't take the Senate. And it definitely could set stage for 2024. Um, it doesn't seem at this point like the Republican Party is going to go more moderate on these issues. And as we've been saying for a long time on the show for, you know, the better part of the last six months, um, their positions on these kind of culture war questions are not the popular positions. The positions on these culture war questions are very specifically positions of a political minority and one that is increasingly older and one that is increasingly marginal. And so you may think, why then are they going down this path? Like, what is it about... Um, the current political climate that is making the conservative movement push in these directions, which are just obviously knowingly um, contrary to the political will of a lot of the American electorate. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been, I'd been pondering this question for some time and been doing some reading and it had been coming across some pieces over the last week, which I think make a really interesting point um, for a long time the conservative movement has been a weird coalition, right? You had kind of economic, like capitalist libertarian types. You had religious conservatives. You had people who were deeply authoritarian. You had Nazis. You had everyone in between, right? Conspiracy theorists, flat earthers, right? Whoever. The conservative movement has always been, especially in the kind of contemporary American period, um, kind of a bastion for wing nuts. I mean, it, it, it kind of has that reputation. Um, but at the same time, there's an acknowledgement, there has been an acknowledgement that um, those wing nuts all have different politics. And so when we're starting to think through what holds together a coalition of, you know, someone like Ron Paul uh, with someone like Jerry Falwell, right? And the answer always came down to morality, that at the end of the day, most capitalist libertarians aren't actually libertarians. They're just asking for the ability to do whatever they want to do. Um, and a lot of that politics has its roots in things like pro-segregationist politics, right? Um, but it's not even racism that can hold it together. Really what holds it together are these kind of moral absolutisms. And primary in those moral absolutisms were issues of things like marriage and issues of things like abortion. Now, the marriage issue didn't really have the same mobilizing force as, you know, anti-choice politics did, right? Um, that conservatives mobilized around things like, you know, what they called, quote, traditional marriage. Um, but it always stayed as sort of a policy question. It was always sort of a debate that happened sort of on a policy level. The anti-choice movement got violent with it. Um, they organized, you know, sit-ins at 
clinics. They bombed places. They shot people. There was a sense in which the normal conservative could be a part of the anti-choice movement. And they were incredibly effective at doing that. They had this kind of mobilizing, this kind of mobilizing mentality of a moral absolutism. But the marriage issue wasn't really pulling in your kind of grassroots conservative activists, right? They also kind of had this kind of political commonality around taxes. But similarly, it, it wasn't really pulling people out into the streets. But the question of preventing other people from being able to have access to abortion did pull conservatives out into the streets. And it was able to play this role of being this focal point issue that they could mobilize voters around. And there were many, many, many people in the United States that for years and years and years have voted Republicans simply because of their stance on abortion, right? So that plays a very specific role in holding together this disparate coalition. And now it's gone, right? The issue's not there anymore. Right. The Dobbs decision sort of quashed that kind of commonality. Right. They in, in other words, they won, at least temporarily. And that's created a sort of sense of listlessness. Right. A kind of sense of being lost. There's not really much of an understanding of what to do next. And there's a lot of power struggles happening. There's a lot of groups within the religious right that are trying to sort of figure out how they're going to survive the end of the Roe v. Wade era, right? Because it won't necessarily survive that. Um, their entire support base is based on them resisting that one thing. And so what we're watching is we're watching, you know, we've been talking about power struggles within the official right wing for a while on this show, but in the kind of unofficial right wing, what we're starting to watch is we're starting to watch a lot of people start to head in a lot of different directions all at the same time, trying to see what's going to stick. Right, that there's essentially a throwing pasta at the wall moment going on now, uh, where they're kind of going, okay, well, is it going to be gender issues? Is it going to be gay marriage? Is it going to be, you know, what TV shows kids watch? Is it going to be school lunches? Like, what is the culture war issue that's going to unite the conservative movement going to be? And they can't answer that question. And so a lot of media analysis of this moment has been based on the idea that the right-wing movement is now going after things like gay marriage because they feel strong right now. And in point of fact, it, it's potentially very much the opposite of that, that they've had this kind of unfocused culture war approach very specifically because they're at a point of extreme weakness right now, that they don't actually know what to do next, right? They can't talk about gas prices. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, essentially, they're essentially lost. So if the right-wing movement is completely based on grievance politics— and your grievance goes away. What do you have left? I don't know. Every time now I kind of like hear about, you know, the MAGA Civil War or, you know, I saw something on uh, one of these progressive online talk shows. I think it was David Pakman. He was talking about Trump made this uh, statement on Fox News. He said, you know, I really hope that we can turn the temperature down because who yeah. knows who knows what my supporters will do. And basically he was threatening that, you know, we're going to do a bunch yep. of violence. And it's like it's not that we – think that his supporters won't engage in violence we know that but it's like okay you know so one of your supporters goes out and like gets gets killed by the fbi or like you know five of you go to jail for like posting like really out there outlandish violent fantasies on on gab or something like 
<laughs> that's not a mass movement. Like that's not something that right. threatens the state, you know, and that's not even something I think that's going to like register. I mean, we live in a country where there's like a mass shooting, like every other day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are connected to lonely men on the internet that are obsessed with far right fantasies. I don't know. I just, it seems like this constant refrain of like, Oh, you better do what I want. Or, you know, my followers will throw a temper tantrum. It's like, well, we've been living right. in that reality for years now. And it seems like every time you get mad, Trump supporters are less and less likely to really, you know, create some sort of like sizable force or, you know, disruption. I mean, I think that it would take a lot for them to come together in a January 6th type moment uh, Mm -hmm. again. I don't know if you think that would be, you know, replicated now. I mean, there would have to be so many operators. I don't think so. We have to think about like what they've lost since January 6th, right, as, as a conservative movement, right, that they for a long time were able to hold together based on this idea of moral absolutism and using the power of the state to impose moral will. They were able to hold that together. Um, but, you know, Trumpism was kind of this activation of that process, right, that it it kind of took that campaign and turned it into something that looked like an actual political movement that was national and that had energy. Right. But since January 6th, what have we seen? We've seen a number of their organizers go to prison. We've seen a lot of organizations that were a part of that campaign stop working together. We've seen power struggles within the right wing on the sort of activist base. We've seen chaos within the right wing politically on the sort of official level. The entity that was able to hold that all together, Donald Trump is now no longer Really, I mean, he still has political influence, but is not in any way nearly as influential or as powerful as he was when he was in office. And now they also don't have the moral issue to unite around. Right. That's catastrophic for a political movement. That series of circumstances is catastrophic for a political movement. Um, This is not a position of strength for them, that they sort of burned all of their capacity in this fight around the Dobbs decision, and now they don't have anything left, right? That they burned all their capacity around supporting Donald Trump, and now they don't have anything left. And so they burned all their resources. They burned all their bridges. They burned all their connections and a lot of their political support. And now what they're left with is this kind of fragmented shell of what used to be a relatively effective political machine. That's not going to change going forward unless something relatively significant happens. You know, if there's another 9-11, something like that, sure, the, the situation changes overnight, right? But at least for right now, on the daily, the conservative movement has this problem where they do not have anything to actually unite around, to identify with, to sort of be able to declare openly that this is what they're trying to do. I mean, now I'm sure all of us can sit there and say, yes, the uniting factor of the Republican Party is racism. <laughs> sure. Great. They can't say that, though. Um, and they can't win elections that way. And so they really have this problem where, again, as we've been talking about this whole show, they can continue to go more fringy and continue to get smaller and more fragmented and more dispersed. Or they can find some sort of point of commonality again. But that's going to really involve some sort of uniting factor emerging, which uh, isn't at the moment at all. For sure. All right. We ready to get into some funny stuff? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Okay. So first up, (laughs) 
Talk about let them fight. Uh, <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene has been swatted twice now <laughs> by people on Kiwi Farms or claiming to be connected to the site. Kiwi Farms is sort of like a doxing site. Uh, kind of, yeah. Sort of like a 4chan-ish type place. Yeah, it, it's like if you go there, it's... There are discussion forums. People's data gets traded around a lot. It's a lot of like right wing and a lot of people trying to dox people for like online cred points. Like that's a lot of what Kiwi Farms is. But apparently, uh, somebody claiming to be associated with Kiwi Farms has swatted, which is the tactic of basically, you know, illegally and, you know, facetiously calling the police and saying like this person is in you know is armed and something's happening at their house basically getting the SWAT team to go over to their house which is potentially deadly and dangerous this has happened twice to Marjorie Taylor Greene and they've stated in their calls that they're doing this because of her stance on transgender issues which is bizarre because they're also saying they're connected to Kiwi Farms and what's even Funnier is that Marjorie Taylor Greene has now come out saying that the site needs to be taken down, <laughs> which is, I mean, again, just hilarious. It's like anytime these people are, you know, inconvenienced whatsoever or come up against any sort of, you know, resistance, their first go to is censorship and like, oh, take this down. Uh, yeah. These yeah. are the free speech absolutists we've been told so much about. But of course, when the real world smacks them in the face, then they want it deplatformed. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I find so fascinating about this story is the way that stories like this are so much about the Internet coming into everyday life, right? So, like, we have all of these elements of, like, ironic politics going on here. We have all these elements of sort of the paradoxes of reactionaryism kind of coming to play here, right? Like, in this story, we now have Marjorie Taylor Greene siding with someone who claims to be trans, but is also on a hard right wing website all the time, right? Real, this is such a 20, it's such a 2022 story. And it's just like one of these things where it, it's impossible to really know what's happening here. Like, it is the thing that emerged online, obviously, and it is impossible to know what's really happening here unless somebody comes out and, you know, claims responsibility in a way that's serious. Um, we're going to see a lot more of this. Uh, partially because my guess, just if I were to guess, someone did this because they thought it was funny. Um, we're going to see a lot more of this. Like this is this is not a tactic that's going away. Like we're going to see people getting swatted, uh, politicians getting swatted in the future. Like this is absolutely a thing that's going to continue to happen. Well, I think it's fascinating too because this is you know sort of in the same vain as this incel guy that was connected yeah. to Nick Fuentes that went to CPAC and then he was arrested uh, not only for having child pornography on his phone, according to the FBI, but yeah, this disgusting individual uh, apparently was also planning to engage in some sort of like mass shooting event at a Turning Point USA conference down in Florida, Turning Point USA, the Gropers have like systematically targeted them and tried to push them farther and farther to the right into open white nationalism. And there's of course a lot of crossover between folks in that camp with the Gropers and the alt-right 
that's been happening for years. I think both of these incidents show that these larger online far-right communities are starting to become a problem for the right itself. I mean, we saw this with the whole hubbub around literally neo-Nazis coming out and supporting DeSantis in -hmm. Florida at those recent Turning Point rallies. And Turning Point was trying to say, oh, the left is paying these people to show up. And you've got like <laughs> people flying swastika flags and like this is DeSantis country. It's like, no, they weren't. They were already doxxed and, you know, people in anti-fascist groups had already pointed out who they were by the time the, the rally was already over. But again, this just shows that this is a problem for these groups that have cultivated these mass audiences on the far right. This is now starting to kind of come back to bite them in the butt. Yeah, well, and this happens a lot. I mean, conservative movements around the world have been, in the very recent past, I mean, they've they've been toying with the far right for a while, but in the very recent past, that sort of flirtation with the far right's become a lot more overt. And we're watching all over Europe, for example. Um, Right-wing parties take a political hit for the actions of their far-right allies, right? We're watching those far-right allies then try and take control of those political parties, right? Like, this is not a thing that's just happening in the U.S. This is a thing that's happening all over the world right now. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of a sifting of, of political tendencies that's going on, right? That this is really born out of the kind of overtly fascist part of the right wing trying to take control of the right wing um, from people that they view as more moderate kind of neoliberal types. Right. Um, And when the hard right of any kind of political tendency decides that uh, it's time for them to take control of something and that far right is connected to a political tendency that that has a lot to do with kind of the norms of fascism, um, this kind of conflict happens, right? And the right wing continuously eats itself this way. Um, I think what's interesting about this specific moment, though, is about how, you know, for those of us that study the far right, this kind of stuff happens all the time in the far right. People swat each other constantly. They dox each other all the time. Like, the far right is a really hazardous place to be involved in politics, an incredibly hazardous place. Um But there was always kind of this line there where they were, you know, like the alt-right was trying to stay legitimate enough to be able to be influential in the Republican Party so they wouldn't do something like swat a politician. But I think those days are over now. Um, I think that the Nick Fuentes of the world have decided that, well, probably their path to power is not by convincing other Republicans to support them, that their path to power comes through eliminating other Republicans. And that's that's a lot of what we're potentially seeing here. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of this. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.